1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappy, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel and thanks for joining me today. I just finished talking with Jessamine Abel about her new book, The International Minimum, Creativity and Contradiction in Japan's Global Engagement 1933 to 1964. This came out with the University of Hawaii Press in 2015 the book presents a really, really interesting um, and nuanced picture of the emergence and transformation of kinds of internationalism. So internationalism um, in various ways and uh, that takes various shapes in Japan in the middle of the 20th century. And in order to do that, it takes us into some really interesting case studies that range from an account of Japan's engagement in and with the League of Nations, um, the United Nations, into successful and failed attempts to host the Olympic Games, um, and then finally into some really formative conferences that help us understand the ways that internationalism and regionalism were implicated um, in the middle of the 20th century. So it's a really fascinating book that I think is going to be of interest, not just to historians of, and people who are interested in reading about modern Japan, but also uh, anybody who's interested in modern politics in global politics and in kind of foreign relations and its histories as well. So with that, I will leave you to the conversation and just say thank you as ever uh, for your support of the channel and for listening. And I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Jessamine Abel about her new book, The International Minimum. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Jess, and thanks for both writing a really timely and a really fascinating book and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Carla. I'm very happy that you actually wanted to uh, ask me about my book.
1: So let's start with the big question. What brought you to the study of Japan um, and why modern Japan in particular?
0: Well, what brought me to the study of Japan was, uh, as probably is the case with many people, just um, various personal circumstances. Uh, When I was in college, my parents happened to go live in Japan for a year and brought me with them for the summer. I happened to be looking for a topic to write my senior thesis on. And this was, uh, well, I'm giving away how old I am now, but the first time that the Soviet Union went to the g7 conference and the japanese were very upset uh, about that um, circumstance because they had this outstanding territorial dispute with the soviet union and it was in the news every day Uh, i was a politics major in college and thought okay great this is what i'm (laughs) writing my senior thesis on and i really enjoyed researching japan uh as i enjoyed living in japan for that summer and went back to finish my senior year of college and ended up writing a, a senior thesis on Soviet-Japanese-American relations. And, and that was sort of my first step and, and gained interest from there. So modern Japan, because I came at it from a very contemporary angle, uh, I initially thought maybe I will study political science in graduate school. But um found when I was doing a master's in international affairs that I was really more interested in the historical angle of every topic that I, that I looked at, so I decided to study history instead, but I really was interested um, in things that had happened in the fairly recent past and uh, so went with um, modern history.
1: Great. Thank you. So the book that we are talking about today, um, and I'm going to use the words of the book right now and just kind of briefly introduce it for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it. But the study in the words of the book traces the evolution of the internationalist worldview in Japan by examining official policy and general discourse surrounding Japan's withdrawal from the League of Nations and its admission into the United Nations, also the failed and successful attempts to host the Olympics in Tokyo, and also wartime and post-war regional conferences in Tokyo and in Bandung, Indonesia. So that's a kind of summary from the book. Now, those... Though these moments, um, as you tell us early in the book, have received historical attention before, they have uh, not really been studied together. They've been studied separately and not as part of a cohesive story. So the book brings them together into a story about 20th century international relations in Japan, and as a result, it's able to trace continuity and change over time. And by the end of the book and by the end of our conversation today, I'm sure, it'll become clear um, why this is actually really important to do, not just for how we understand history, but for how we understand um, our contemporary world and some current and future issues as well. Okay, so that is the overall, just kind of a capsule, like thumbnail sketch of the project as it stands as a book. But Jess, how did you come to this project in particular? What brought you to the issue of international relations in Japan as a focus for your study?
0: Well, uh, as I mentioned, I had um, done a master's in international affairs uh, before applying to PhD programs and um, was coming at it from an interest in international relations. And I initially wanted to uh, research the post-war uh, uh, precursors, of the post-war background of Japan's contemporary international relations. I, and I was particularly interested in some of the um, conflicts between Japan's very strong position economically and the criticism it was getting internationally for not being internationalist enough and not really. Uh, contributing enough to the international community. So looking for the background uh, of this in the post-war period, I uh, learned about Japan's continued participation in the League of Nations after they officially withdrew in 1933. And that kind of made me start wondering, oh well, if there were people who were still trying to be internationalist after Japan quit the League of Nations, what happened to those people Over the course of the war. uh, And that really pulled my interest back uh, toward the 1930s and 1940s. Um, And uh, I discovered when I looked at that some really interesting continuities, uh, but also changes that happened during the war that seemed to be very important for post-war foreign policy and international relations.
1: Great. Now, this is a project that started out as a dissertation project, right? Even if it right. changed. So can you talk a little bit about that for us? So, to, In the transi- transition or transformation from dissertation to book, were there any kind of major or notable uh, transformations in the nature of the project?
0: Well, the Biggest transformation is one of size. (laughs) I uh, basically wrote half of the book as my dissertation, uh, and that was essentially the the wartime period. Uh, Even though I had originally envisioned it, uh, and I think even my dissertation title, if I can remember what it was, uh, included a transwar period, uh, I thought of it as a transwar topic. But I got so interested in the wartime questions while I was doing my dissertation research that I really ended up focusing on that and having maybe a little epilogue about the post-war in my dissertation. So what I wanted to do for the book was to finish the project, essentially. So I went back to Japan. I did research on the 1964 Olympics. I did research on the 1955 Bandung Conference. I did a bit more research on the UN, although I had started that earlier. Um, And... I don't want to say filled out because I actually just finally wrote that that post war half of the the book. Um, it became uh, uh, more of a the, the thematic organization that you see in the book now came later. It was originally sort of a chronological look. So I would had the dissertation and then this new stuff afterward, and I realized later that the topics were more conducive to kind of bringing the post-war into each section. So that was the the major change is sort of really what I saw as finishing the dissertation.
1: Okay, great. So let's actually get right into it. And I'll say um, just kind of a little bit and then open out um, into some questions from there. So the introduction sets the stage for us to look at um, or get, get into the 1920s and to look at the period from the 1920s to the 1960s as a single trans war period. You tell us that after the 1919 Paris Peace Conference and the establishment of the League of Nations, Wilsonianism became the major framework of international relations around the world. In the 1920s, political and intellectual leaders in Japan begin to kind of latch on to the concept of international cooperation. Um, And sort of the nature of of Wilsonianism and and the way that um, Japanese approaches to internationalism actually diverge importantly from that becomes an important theme and point of intersection um, for a bunch of threads later on in the book. So maybe for listeners who um, may not be familiar with that concept can you kind of super briefly describe um, what is what do we need to know about Wilsonianism at this point in the conversation in order to understand the significance later on of divergences from that um, when we start talking about internationalisms in Japan
0: okay that sounds like a simple question but it <laughs> actually a little bit complex uh, I mean, there's a basic answer and a, and a more complicated answer um, the basic answer is uh, ideas of international cooperation that are based on um, the ideas that Wilson was putting forth at the Paris Peace Conference uh, ideas such as um, sovereign equality among nations and uh, uh, free trade and um, various other modes of, of cooperating and um, it has been sort of interpreted away from the specifics of what Wilson uh, said and the discourse that, that moved up out around that to kind of a general idea of uh, that international cooperation is beneficial and good for the nations involved and for the world as a whole. Um, there's been a lot more uh, theorization um, in recent decades, um, by political scientists and historians, uh, as well on the topic of Wilsonianism and internationalism try, try, starting to kind of question the knee jerk sense that, oh, Wilsonian cooperation, um, uh, uh, sovereign nations working together, uh, <laughs> with, with free trade and human rights. And, um, well, let's, let's put aside human rights, sorry, that complicates the question even more, um, Uh, that it's necessarily uh, a good thing and starting to kind of question the uh, implicit hierarchies um, of nation and race uh, as sort of starting to uh, tear those ideas down a little bit, uh, that that sort of knee jerk sense that this is essentially a good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So for, The purposes of my book, I'm really using the the term internationalism, uh, not in a strict kind of dogmatic way, Mm -hmm. but really to refer to this basic idea that it is in the national interests to cooperate on an international level and that there are things that nations together can do that one nation by itself can't do.
1: Great, thank you so much. And I think the book um, is really wonderfully clear about the fact, also. And I think you know it's it's very explicit about this that um, internationalism is not one kind of thing, right? Um, throughout the book, and it's a kind of fluid concept, and it changes over the course of. Uh, And it kind of pluralizes over the course of the story. Um, So I think that's also a really useful thing um, for us to keep in mind uh, as listeners who may not be right familiar with the topic. Okay, so after an introduction that sets the stage, we get into the first part of the book. Part one of the book opens in 1933, and it looks at changing Japanese views of multilateral organizations. Now, it opens out into the first chapter um, into a scene that becomes um, a kind of uh, flashpoint um, in a way and it becomes a really important transformative moment. The Japanese representative to the League of Nations, um, Matsuoka Yosuke, stands and walks out of the League. This was a protest of the League's decision on the Manchurian dispute between Japan and China and the book um, names this as a key moment in the evolution of Japanese foreign policy. So Jess, can you maybe kind of bring us into this moment and its significance? So how Um, why was this so transformative Um, and what did this um, spur in terms of transformations of Japanese approaches to internationalism at this point? Okay.
0: Um, Well, it was transformative because it was the Uh, first step essentially of Japan's withdrawal from the League of Nations. It's official withdrawal as a nation from the League of Nations. Uh, And so it's a major change to Japanese foreign policy over the previous 13 years, the Japanese government had initially reluctantly, but, but uh, uh, fully uh, engaged with the League of Nations um, and, Membership, not just membership in the League, but uh, Japan's position as a member of um, essentially the equivalent of today's UN Security Council uh, gave Japan a certain international status, and international position. Uh, so withdrawing from the League lost that. It lost a lot of the opportunities for international engagement um, that, as I said in your, your summary pointed out earlier, had become – very important had become, um, uh, well, many Japanese diplomats had had come to see, uh, as very important to Japanese foreign policy and Japan's national interests. So it was transformative because Japan was really losing something. It was losing a position. It was losing a venue for cooperation. Uh, and what that meant was that the people who still thought Japan needed to cooperate, and that was most diplomats at this time, uh, they had to find a different way to do it, right? And they had to find a different way to not just demonstrate Japan's international and regional position and leadership, but also do these kinds of activities that were involved in membership in the League of Nations, um, things like intellectual cooperation, um, you know, and that's. Uh, I, I, Maybe we'll talk later about the uh, Society for International Cultural Relations, the Kokusai Bunka Shinkokai. This is an organization that was formed right after Japan quit the league, very explicitly to kind of pick up what had been lost with withdrawing from the league. So it was transformative in that it made people who wanted to continue international engagement, try to find new ways to do that. Um, And the question of sort of what, in what ways was it transformed? um, Well, I basically, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but I I basically summarized it in the book as um, a, a shift from political activities to cultural activities. So even within the League of Nations, the, the the Japanese government said, we're stopping any political activities with the League, any cooperation with the League's political activities, but we're going to continue things like uh, participating on committees on health, um, on women and children, uh, on... Um the mandates, uh, for instance, um, labor. So they wanted to continue anything that they saw as separate from the political, but really were were withdrawing from just political cooperation. So there was an explicit shift to the cultural there, but also through things like the the foundation of the um, Society for International Cultural Relations and the uh, uh, movement to host the Olympics. Um, and the other trans- the other half of this kind of. Bio- two-part transformation uh, was a shift from a global range to a regional one. A lot of the reactions to the League's decision on uh, the Manchurian incident were, you know what, the League doesn't understand Asia anyway. How can we trust them to make a decision about Asia when they're just not informed? Um, What we need is an Asian League or uh, uh, some sort of Asia focused structure for cooperation. Um, mm-hmm. So, it, from the global uh, uh, scope to the regional scope.
1: Great. Thank you so much. This actually really beautifully leads us into the next part of the book. So after a chapter um, that looks at Japan's involvement with the United Nations, and we're not going to have time to really talk substantively about that, but I just want to mark for listeners who are particularly interested in that part of the story, um, that chapter two deals with that in really beautiful detail. We move to part two of the book this is a part um, of the book that traces a shift that you've just described, right? This is a shift toward seemingly kind of quote non-political ways of engaging the international community and a shift toward um, what the book calls and what you've just described as a kind of cultural diplomacy. So this part of the book looks at three examples of attempts to do that. Um, One that we'll talk about in a moment is the establishment and activities of the Society for International Cultural Relations that you've mentioned. And then the two others are an unsuccessful and then a successful effort to host the Olympics in Tokyo in 1938 and 1964, respectively. Um, So let's actually get into it. Chapter 3 looks at the development of um, non-governmental avenues for diplomacy and the shift toward cultural internationalism. And it focuses in particular on the Society for International Cultural Relations, which was founded in April 1934. Um, So Jess, can you talk... of briefly just a little bit about this society. What kinds of things did it do and um, what do we need to understand about its significance in order to kind of contextualize it within the broader arc of the story that you're telling here?
0: Okay. Um, The uh, society, I usually refer to it by the Japanese abbreviation KBS, so we're going (laughs) to just do that since that's a little bit easier. Um, They had a variety of activities that changed over time. The uh, initial idea was to introduce what they called the cultures of East Asia or the culture. They didn't pluralize it. The culture of East Asia to a primarily Western audience. Uh, And by the culture of East Asia, they meant Japanese culture and things about um, kimono and japanese dolls and the like um and so that came in various forms they uh engaged in um uh, book projects and film projects they would make a lot of films about various uh the day in the life of a japanese artist or some sort of um other cultural activity or or um aspect of japanese culture society uh, and um distribute these products uh, uh to various partner uh, countries that they that they had uh, mostly in the west um they also had uh professor exchanges so they wanted to send japanese professors abroad and also bring um foreign professors to japan to study to research um at, Translation projects, uh, uh, anything that would sort of introduce Japanese culture uh, to a Western audience. Um, after 1938, uh, well, from 1938, after the, the, the escalation of the Sino Japanese War in 1937, attention of the society really shifted from introducing Eastern culture, i.e. Japanese culture, uh, to a Western audience um, and started to focus more on becoming sort of an arm of empire building. Mm. Uh, one scholar um, talks about this as, as the KBS became a subcontractor to the government. I really like that, that phrase because they're essentially doing The government's work right uh some people quit over this shift but mostly the personnel stayed the same and they just kind of shifted from trying to build what they referred to as mutual understanding which really meant getting people to understand japan and 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 accept their way of thinking about japan uh from mutual understanding to a much more top-down trying to uh spread Japanese culture throughout the empire. Uh, and this came in uh, Japanese language materials that were sent to um, China, Southeast Asia, uh, Japanese films. Um, one in particular that came to mind that really em- uh, emphasized the shift for me in what the the KBS was doing was that they had um, – A film called, I I forget exactly the name now, but something like Naval Japan, showing the, and it was described as showing the uh, uh, unbeatable power of our Navy. I was like, well, that's not really so (laughs) cultural. It's a long stretch from a day in the life of a Japanese artist. Um, So there was a different kind of material, certainly, being sent to Southeast Asia. But there was also a lot of emphasis on teaching Japanese language uh, and other ways of what they explicitly said was building a cultural co-prosperity sphere. I mean, that phrase, cultural co-prosperity sphere, came a little bit later that wasn't exactly 1938 or in the early 1940s. Uh, but you can see that change happening quite gradually uh, but clearly from the late 1930s um, straight through the end of the war.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Now this also really nicely leads us into the next chapter and the next example that you take us into. This is chapter four, which looks at efforts to use sports or it kind of begins um, to look at this and, and uh, further chapters in the book do this as well. So it begins to look at efforts to use sports in the service of diplomacy, and it focuses on an ultimately unsuccessful effort to host the Olympics in Tokyo in 1938. Now, there are a number of really interesting things going on here in this chapter, and I just kind of want to ask you to talk a little bit about one or two of them. So you talk um, about this use of the Olympics sports and sports in the service of diplomacy um, to so to, insofar as it kind of extended and reinforced this turn toward popular cultural diplomacy that we saw in the KBS case that you just described. You mention here um, something that, again, in the words of the book, and um, uh, I'm going to put it in the words of the book, is actually really interesting and important and I think has a lot of um, relevance to, Uh, right now and to today so I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about it you say the myth that the games were apolitical facilitated their political use Um, and the chapter talks um, in part about the politics here as being a kind of uh, fusing of internationalism and the rhetoric of internationalism with rising ultranationalism and ethro- ethnocentrism in 1930s Japan. So, can you talk a little bit about kind of this intersection for us? Um, how did the myth that the games were apolitical facilitate their political use? And to what extent did that political use start looking more and more like a kind of ethnocentrism and ultranationalism? <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, let me first just uh, make
0: one correction. Um, the games were supposed to be held in nineteen forty. Uh, nineteen thirty-eight was the year they were canceled. I just want to ah um,
1: okay great. Claire, so the the point. unsuccess or the failure was in nineteen thirty-eight. Yeah, okay. exactly. Great. Exactly. Thank you for that. Um,
0: so uh, the fusing of internationalism with ultra nationalism. Uh, uh, wait, the question was, how did the myth of being apolitical, apolitical facilitate that political yeah, so use?
1: That, so uh, it's just a, uh, I'm just asking to kind of open this up a little. The chapter seems to um, talk about, you know, the ways that this rhetoric of apolitical, um, the apolitical nature of these games really actually help them be more effective politically.
0: Yeah, well, the claim that the games are apolitical um, means that, it doesn't matter what your politics are, you can come and play sports with us. And that was useful to Japan at the time because they were being so widely criticized for the invasion of China, right? Um, And so uh, uh, it was a good venue because they could say, you know what, it doesn't matter whether we agree uh, on this question of whether Japan should or should not be in China or whether what we're doing in China is is acceptable or not. uh, Because the Olympics are above politics, right? That's just politics. Uh, The Olympics are above that. And so it's an opportunity for us to all get together in spite of the fact that we have this political disagreement. And the idea from the Japanese side was, well, if we could just get all these foreigners to come to Japan and see what we're really like and see uh, uh, our modern, um, beautiful capital uh, and understand the Japanese spirit, then they won't criticize us so much. Then they'll, they'll really understand that. And, and here I'm I don't mean to be saying this myself. This is their their words um, that their perspective was that, uh, they, that foreigners would understand that Japan was the natural and rightful leader of Asia and they would back off and say, yeah, sure, you should lead China and, and um, all these other peoples of Asia and we're going to stop complaining. Uh, that was their wish. Um, and so the myth that the Olympics were apolitical meant that they were getting the opportunity to do that, right? They People like the American member of the IOC would say, oh, it doesn't matter that we don't like what they're doing. Uh, he said the same thing regarding Nazi Germany, by the way, in 1936. It doesn't matter that we don't like what they're doing. Um, we're, we're not dealing in politics here. If you want to protest, if you want to boycott, uh, go find some other venue to do it in because sports are above politics. So it even just opened up the opportunity of a country that was doing something that was anathema to the international community could still participate in the international community. Um, The other thing it did was that it emptied out the political content of the Olympics. So you can then fill it in with anything. Uh, And what the Japanese filled it in with um, very much modeling their effort on the 1936 Berlin Olympics uh, was this kind of ethnocentric uh, uh, content, which and an important aspect of that is that the Olympics are not really apolitical. They have a very strong element of promoting ideals of internationalism and international cooperation. They're also inherently nationalistic with the national teams facing each other. And, you know, today we see national medal counts and uh, who has um, more gold, the most gold medals, et cetera, being a, a part of, um, for instance, Cold War politics, but still still important today. Um, And so what that does is by having this internationalist content and then allowing the Japanese promoters to fill in their ethnocentric content, uh, it creates this sort of hybrid form um, of an ethnocentric internationalism.
1: Thank you so much. So, after describing this um, in chapter four, you move us into what was ultimately a successful attempt to host the Olympics in Tokyo. Now, this, you describe this next um, effort to host the Olympics insofar as it built on the experience that you just described, and um, which was ultimately not successful. Um, so you, t- you describe in Chapter 5 this um, Tokyo Olympiad in 1964 as building on the strong connection between sports and diplomacy that had developed in this previous period in the 1930s. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, for you, what were some of the most important ways that what was happening in the context that you just described importantly shaped um, the approach to and, and sort of ultimately what happened um, in the 1960s um, at the Tokyo Olympia that was actually held well the most at the most basic level it was just that idea
0: that we can use this sports event to to rebuild connections with the world um, and people talked about it a lot that way at the time that this is um, so Japan's uh, international debut, or, or something like that. Um, although you know, technically Japan had been involved in various international events, but this was the big splashy one that kind of brought the attention of the world back to Japan. Um, introduced Japan to the world, uh, so to speak. Um, so that on that basic level, um, it was there was a very conscious effort to copy what they had done, finished what they had started, people talked about this as the culmination of a, a bid for the Olympics that had begun in 1932 when they first bid for the for the uh, Olympics in uh, L.A., at the L.A., 1932 L.A. Games. Um, but importantly, there was also this element of nationalism which went in kind of a different way insofar as in post-war Japan, nationalism was tainted by the war. So- the supposedly apolitical nature of the Olympics meant that it was OK to be nationalistic again. Right. You're not in danger of being interpreted as being uh, a militarist or um, of being a, a right wing if you're just rooting for your team in the Olympics, right? Because that's a very normal thing to do, to root for your own country, to root for your uh, own country's athletes in the Olympics. So it was sort of a safe, safe space for the uh, sort of rehabilitation of certain Japanese uh, symbols of nationalism. So, um, for instance, the national flag. Right. What well, was not officially the national flag, but um, it, the uh, Hinomaru, the rising sun flag, um, is proudly displayed, right, because all the countries are displaying their flags, So it's a normal thing to do. Uh, the national anthem that was very much tainted and continues today to be tainted by uh, the wartime, um, uh, by wartime nationalism um Also, is the national anthem that gets played when Japanese athletes get a gold medal? uh, Because every country plays their national anthem when the the uh, country gets a a gold medal, right? So it became this very normalized thing. Um, So not necessarily creating an ethnocentric internationalism, but certainly providing a space for the rehabilitation of nationalism.
1: Now, this chapter um, talks uh, in part about the way that viewing these two Olympic moments together helps us identify elements of Japan's foreign policy that have Mm -hmm. lasting significance, right? And we've talked a little bit about that. Um, It also talks about something that I think um, I want to mark because it's going to be particularly of interest to anyone um, who has an interest in history of technology um, and in media studies, um, and that is the importance of satellite television as a technology that actually promotes international relations here. Um, so I think that you know, the chapters really, and all of the chapters are really interesting um, and, f- and careful to focus on the consequences of these case studies that you've been talking about for how internationalism was understood in practice and how it transformed over the course of time. Um, but I also want to just kind of highlight some really cool, interesting details, right? Um, so satellite television and the promotion of international relations, did you want to talk- a little bit about that because it seems like a really cool, actually, kind of history of technology part of the story.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm glad you asked about that because that's one of my favorite little tidbits <laughs> <laughs> as well, um, uh, and, and in part because I've been focusing more on transportation infrastructures uh, since I finished this book, um, so the communications infrastructure also is, is very interesting to me. Um, this played kind of a two-part role in in the promotion of, uh, of international relations in general, but also Japan's position in the world. One was that it literally connected, right, in a, in a more immediate way, uh, connected Japan to distant places around the world. Uh, and they very carefully um, planned for uh, a satellite to be in position to broadcast the games um, to the United States uh, and Europe at the time um, that the Olympics would be held, and the Japanese government Uh, helped pay for the United States to launch a satellite so that it would be up there at the right time in the right place. So even though it's American infrastructure, Japan was very uh, deeply involved in in getting it put together for this event. Um, So part of it was getting involved in that um, infrastructure building. And then that, uh, uh, the satellite itself and the satellite broadcast of the games um, planners imagined would just make it that much more accessible, right? So more people would get to experience the Japan that they were offering them as a piece of cultural diplomacy, right? So if the idea behind the 1940 games was oh bring all these foreigners to japan they'll see us they'll get to know us they'll love us now it was like well you don't even have to come to japan because japan is coming to your television set and and you can see it from the comfort of your living room so the satellite was important there now they, of course the olympics had already been televised and a lot of this because of the time difference actually was uh played um from from tape but um but certain parts of it were broadcast live. Uh, So the idea of the live broadcast helped get that message out, but it also was itself creating a message. And that message was about Japan as a high tech nation, right? Even though it was an American satellite, Japanese involvement showed here we have Japan participating in this very high tech, uh, uh, you know, the latest technology of broadcast, which was these satellites. Um, So, Being able to see Japan on your television set, but also the knowledge that here this was Japan kind of helping to create the technology and build the technology of the future was part of the remaking of Japan's national image. That was kind of one of the big keys to cultural diplomacy at this time.
1: Great. Thank you. So as we move um, from this to the third part of the book, um, there's there's actually a lot more description of infrastructure and other ways that Japan was internationalized for the Olympics um, in Chapter 5 that we won't have a chance to talk about, but I'll just mention for listeners who are particularly interested in this part of the story, um, that chapter actually talks quite a lot um, and really interestingly about the ways that um, construction in and around Tokyo, um, pre- uh, preface The Olympics. It talks about the promotion of judo. Um, It talks about the promotion of um, sports etiquette, and so there's a lot of really cool aspects of this story about Japan internationalizing itself for the Olympics. That readers will find in chapter five. That even if we don't have a chance to talk about it um, in too much detail right now, but let's move on to part three. Um, Part three of the book looks at notions of Asian regional cooperation in the context of war and its aftermath, and we've already started to talk about about this um, uh, in the you know our conversation so far but let's actually get into it cuz there's uh, there are a couple of really interesting moments or case studies here that the book opens up um, into So I want to kind of move to Chapter 7 for a moment. Chapter 7 looks very closely at the Greater East Asia Conference of 1943, and it talks about the way that this conference helped develop a kind of regionalism here um, that was at the same time uh, kind of that at the same time expressed Um, kind of elements of anti-colonialism, anti-Westernism, and it was importantly different from the kind of Wilsonianism um, that was being promoted at the time. And so this is another reason why I'd like to ask you about this, to kind of follow this thread of a movement away from Wilsonianism that we see in this part of the book. So Jess, can you talk a little bit about that conference for you? Um, what's particularly interesting and significant about the greater East Asia conference of 1943 and the way that it shaped internationalisms in Japan at that point? Well, I would emphasize that um, it was, there were
0: also efforts to, maintain a kind of Wilsonianism, even as this is an example of Japan really um, at the peak of a a battle against the epitome of the Wilsonian system of the League of Nations and and, um, the Allied powers, that... Japanese leaders are still trying to use the forms of Wilsonian internationalism. That their uh, uh, Shigemitsu, the foreign minister at the time, uh, even talks about building a league-like structure, right? He, they, they are trying to take those ideas of regional cooperation, um, sovereign equality, uh, open trade, uh, uh, territorial integrity, Um, and use them against the United States and the other allied powers Uh, and in fact one of the things I do in the chapter is to compare the Atlantic Charter um, which is a document signed by the United States and Great Britain to the document that came out of this conference the Greater East Asian Declaration Uh, and really point by point they're saying the same things. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: However, (laughs) the great inter East Asian conference is quite clearly an effort to just get other Asian countries to help Japan in its war effort. Part of that comes from the joint planning of the event. So, People like Prime Minister Tojo were really thinking about this as a way to get the nations of Southeast Asia um, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and China on board with Japan's war effort. While Foreign Minister, Foreign Minister Shigemitsu is really thinking about it as uh, the beginnings of a post-war diplomacy and trying to build some sort of uh, uh, league-like structure, some sort of Wilsonian um, structure for international relations. So they have uh, uh, almost opposite goals In the conference, so it really ends up being, you know, like the 1940 Olympics, uh, bringing together the opposites of internationalism and ethno-ethnocent what the apparent opposites, I should say, of internationalism, ethnocentrism, uh, bringing together the apparent opposites of um, militarism and aggressive imperialism with international cooperation.
1: Thank you. Now, the next chapter looks at another really, really interesting moment and another really interesting conference that also kind of expands some of these concerns and moves us forward in the story. This is the Asian-African conference held in Bandung, Indonesia, in April 1955. Now, you talk about this conference um, as being particularly significant um, as a kind of first step in establishing Japanese leadership um, of this kind of regional, network and, in the words of the book, um, redeploying many of the ideas and practices of Japan's wartime policies toward Asia. Um, you t- there's And there's really interesting things that are happening at this conference. Um, you talk about the, the fact that um, the Japanese delegation was actually relatively quiet in their presence at the conference. You talk about the fact that the delegation is presenting a kind of new Japan at this conference. So there's a lot of really cool stuff that we could talk about here, but What I'd like to just ask you is what you think um, in this uh, is most kind of interesting and significant about this Bandung conference. Um, Again, um, insofar as it helps us understand the larger um, points and the larger goals that the book has in terms of uh, telling its story about internationalism. I guess in terms of,
0: there's a lot about the Bandung Conference that I find most interesting, so it's a hard question to answer. But uh, in terms of the goals of the book, probably the most important element is the, the similarities between the 1943 Greater East Asia Conference and the 1955 Bandung Conference. Two conferences that have Oh, I was going to say almost opposite goals, but in a way, very similar goals insofar as they both did have that uh, anti-colonial, um, anti-Western emphasis. Um, but here, you know, really Japan is, is in the opposite position. They almost weren't invited to the Bandung conference. Um, so several of the planning companies, uh, co- excuse me, countries were kind of like, wait a minute. How are we going to invite this formal colonial power to our anti-colonial conference? That doesn't make sense. But um, others prevailed uh, based on the idea that they really needed the Japanese economy um, for their own rebuilding um, and and post-colonial goals. Um, And so ultimately, Japan was invited, but it was not. The one calling the shots, as it had been in 1943. In 1943, the Japanese decided everything. They wrote the the so called Joint Declaration themselves. In 1955, they, as you pointed out, barely said a word in the sort of main uh, conference, and were just more active in uh, cultural. Activities and, and economic activities. Um, there were two subcommittees, kind of the cultural subcommittee and the, and the economic subcommittee. And the Japanese were more active there. But in the main uh, political um, uh, meetings, the sort of head delegate, chief delegates' meetings, uh, I think I, I found maybe two sentences that the Japanese delegate uh, uttered the entire time. And one of them was like, yeah, I agree with my colleague who just spoke. You know, they were really (laughs) not, not saying a lot. So it was sort of one important difference was this sheepish uh, position. Um, But at the same time, even while they were in this very different position, they were saying a lot of the same things Uh, in his uh, speech to the chief delegates um, meeting a prepared speech uh, for which an English translation was passed around, although he spoke in Japanese, uh, the Japanese delegate even used the phrase "co-prosperity," um, although it was translated differently in the English version. He used that same Kyoe uh, that uh, the co-prosperity sphere has in in. Um, uh, in Japanese, so the word is the same in in Japanese. So here he is uh, at this post colonial, um, anti colonial conference, calling for co prosperity um, in Asia. Uh, so he's saying a lot of the the same things that were said, um, using a lot of the same ideas uh, that were voiced in 1943, of course. To a different end, not looking for cooperation in war, but very much looking to um, rebuild the bridges that had been burned by the war, um, by Japanese aggression in these in these countries, um, by promoting economic cooperation um, and uh, uh, um, and and various cultural activities that would, um Achieve the same kinds of goals that planners of the Olympics had talked about. You know, develop understanding of Japan, right? If we can have them read up about Japanese culture, that that, that they will no longer think of us of of us in this sort of um, as this militaristic, aggressive country, but instead they'll think of us as a country with advanced economic, uh, excuse me, technological capabilities, uh, a country that can help us um, with our development goals uh, as a model for development as a, a, a teacher or an aid in development. Um, and so in that way, you know, you talked about this phrase, New Japan, and that's something that's all over the Japanese writings on this conference, that they just really want to introduce a new Japan. They want to get rid of these old uh, ideas and really create something new. But the funny thing is that in trying to create this new thing, they do kind of dust off a lot of the old wartime Ideas. Um, they even take, uh, uh, the, um, uh, I forget exactly who does this. One of the, one of the people involved in the conference and kind of talks about it in terms of a, another step in a long process of, um, promoting, Racial equality, and they can bring it back to the Paris Peace Conference, saying, you know, Japan pr- proposed a racial equality clause in the League of Nations Charter, and we were uh, shot down at that point. And ever since, <laughs> you know, kind of forgetting that there was a whole war in between, ever since we've been trying to promote racial equality. Um, and so that, that rhetoric um, from before and, and also from during the war getting kind of brought back out in this new context to create a a supposedly new Japan, which in many ways is a lot like the old Japan.
1: So as we move toward the conclusion of our conversation, we also move toward the end of the book. Um, There's an epilogue in the book that does a lot of really interesting, thoughtful work, but one of the things in particular that it discusses um, is what I'd like to kind of ask you to talk a little bit about. So the epilogue talks a little bit about the ways that all of this help um, us think about and maybe understand the upcoming 2020 Summer Olympic and Paralympic Games to be held in Tokyo. So Jess, as a way of kind of bringing this um, to a close, could you talk a little bit about that? How does this story um, help or inform how we think about the upcoming Olympic games and Paralympic games in Tokyo? Well,
0: um, one uh, uh, important aspect is the way that sports have continued to be um, part of uh, the sort of toolbox of Japanese diplomacy. Um, this is not the first time we're seeing it again since 1964. I mean, there have been a few Olympic Games, uh, Winter Olympics in Japan, but where I really saw it most um, mm-hmm. clearly before this was in the uh, the World Cup um, Held uh, jointly by in Korea and Japan, um, that actually happened while I was doing my dissertation research, and I happened to be researching the 1940 Olympics chapter while uh, I was reading the newspaper um, articles about the joint World Cup with Korea, and it was it was kind of funny how similar. The stuff I was reading in the archives during the day was to the stuff I was reading in the newspaper when I got home at night, a lot of the same, like, oh, people will get to know us, you know, then they'll understand, we'll understand each other, mutual understanding um, will lead to world peace and and all this. And um, I thought, well, okay, (laughs) they're still trying. Um, And uh, so one element is to just see that in the long trajectory, uh, but also to kind of understand um what the wh- why why do countries ho- want to host the olympics there's been a lot of question uh along those lines lately because there've been my, my, a lot of studies about how tough this is on cities how economically um Painful it can be, much in great contrast to the sort of economic boost that people talk about. So why why does a country want to host the why does a city want to host the Olympics? Um, and part of it has to do with this international image that's created. Um, another thing that really struck me in thinking about the 2020 Olympics was that even as it's imagined as this. Um, interconnection between national interests and international goals. Uh, the content of that was very different. So it's a very different Japan coming to the 2020 games, bidding for the 2020 games, than the one that bid for either the 1940 or the 1964 games. So both of those were a Japan trying to show um, how strong it was, whether militarily in the 1930s or economically and and technologically in the 1960s to uh, taking a different international position. It was Japan really positioning itself against China, uh, the rising power in Asia and trying to say, look, we are the mature country um uh, tokyo is a is a mature city we have things to offer and a model to present to other mature cities i mean the word mature really struck me in their materials uh we're not up and coming they seem to be saying but we have figured everything out and we have the wisdom to to share with the world um so it was a very different attitude coming into it but at the same time a lot of the same activities so for instance i talked in uh chapter five about the sewer system being built in part because people were embarrassed about the possibility that foreigners would come to Tokyo and it would literally stink. Uh, So we have to build sewers. Well, in the run up to the 2020 games or actually as soon as uh, the games were awarded to Tokyo, people started saying, Hey, you know, we built these sewers about 50 years ago (laughs) and um, it's really time for an upgrade. Uh, So, you know, not just the sewers, but a lot of different aspects of Tokyo infrastructure uh, kind of started getting connected to the Olympic Games in very much the same way uh, as had happened in 1964 and, and in 1940 as well, although we, we haven't talked about that, um, that there's this very local aspect of the politics of the Olympics, so on the one level, it's this sort of international relations, big picture, but on the other level, it's like as as nitty gritty as you can get in talking about the, this uh, sewer system.
1: Mm-hmm. So now that we are at the conclusion of the conversation, there's, of course, a bunch of stuff that we could have talked about, right, that we didn't have time for. There's a ton more stuff um, discussed uh, re- related to all the things that we talked about in the chapters. But given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, I don't think
0: there's uh, anything in particular that... Um, I want to mention, other than, well, uh, w- w- when we were talking before, you said something about the cover of the book. And I will say that I'm very proud of the cover <laughs> of the book because I colored those flags myself. This is really? from a black and white picture <laughs> that I found. And it, it took me um, actually hours of uh, uh- <laughs> playing with it on my computer. And I think it came out pretty
1: nice. It does look great. <laughs> <It> does look <laughs> Thank great. you. <laughs> so now that the book is out and it does have a fabulous cover, um, <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned that. What is next for you? What are you working on now? What's uh, What kind of work is currently inspiring you?
0: Well, I mentioned uh, transportation infrastructure. Um, right now I'm working on a, a cultural history of Japan's first bullet train, which opened between... Tokyo and Osaka in 1964, actually just a few days before the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, which is actually what got me interested in this topic, uh, in researching the Olympics, I kept seeing people talking about the bullet train and they were so excited and I said, you know, this is the jet age, why are you excited about a train? Uh, And I really wanted to know so I started looking into that um, and, you know, the bullet train is often called a symbol of modern Japan so I said well if it's a symbol... What does it signify? And so the book I'm working on now uh, is an effort to answer that question in terms of uh, international relations. In part, I'm not completely moving away from international relations, but I'm thinking about how the bullet train affects Japan's relations, um, not only with the West, where there's starting to be some trade tensions emerging, but also with uh, – Other countries, um, developing countries especially, who they might be able to help with, train technology and kind of do that sort of uh, technological diplomacy that we saw happening a little bit in the Bandung conference – so partly in terms of international relations in along those lines but also in terms of the social construction of space how does the bullet train change the way people understand the the social space of their city the the tokaido region um, their nation as a whole, uh, and also in that getting at questions of identity on the level of uh, not just the individual, but also cities and the nation as a whole. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that sounds great, too. So thank you so much for taking time away from that um, to to talk with me about this project. Um, My pleasure. Congratulations on the book, Jess, and thanks uh, so much again for making time. It's really been a pleasure. A pleasure
0: is all mine. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Plus.